Now, as you open your Bibles to Ruth chapter 4, we keep in mind what's happened from the beginning of the book. This is the story of a poor old woman named Naomi. Naomi, who with her family, 10 years before the story really got into action, she moved from Israel, Bethlehem to be specific, and to the land of Moab because there was a famine in the land of Israel. And when she did what she wasn't supposed to do, leaving the promised land, leaving the community of God's people, doing it out of desperation because she felt that she had no other option, although she did have another option. You know, oftentimes when you feel you have no other options, here's your option. You can trust God in the midst of your circumstances. And that's unfortunately what Elimelech, her husband, and Naomi didn't do. So they took their two children, Chilion and Mahalon, and they went to Moab, and things didn't get any better for them in Moab. No, it only got worse crisis piled upon crisis and Elimelech died and the two sons died and pretty soon you were left with a childless widow named Naomi and two childless widows who were her daughters-in-law Orpah and Ruth and Naomi decides I'm going to get back right with God I'm going to go back to Bethlehem and God blesses her along the way but when she comes back to Bethlehem her testimony is not all light and sweetness no instead it's grief It's pain. She comes back, and you remember her great line. She said, don't call me pleasant. Call me bitter. Because that's how the last 10 years had been for her. But when she got back to Bethlehem, God started moving in her life. God started moving in her life through a man named Boaz. And Boaz was a special man to Naomi and her family, and of course the daughter-in-law Ruth. He was a special man because he was, and this is sort of a technical term, It's what's known as a goel. Now, the goel was a special chieftain, so to speak, in a family clan in ancient Israel. The goel had responsibility for the property of the family, for the persons of the family, and for the posterity, that is, the descendants of the family. And it had a special responsibility to take care of them. And pretty soon, God had arranged it where Ruth and Boaz had developed a romance. And as we saw last week, in a very dramatic encounter, Ruth asked Boaz to fulfill his role towards her as Goel. Basically, to put it forwardly, Ruth said to Boaz, I want you to marry me. Because this is what the law says that you're supposed to do. Now, she did it very sweetly, she did it very tenderly. We talked about all that last week. But at the end of last week, we also saw that Boaz revealed something to us that we never knew before. That even though Boaz was a near kinsman, a close relative, a goel, there was somebody closer to Ruth than he was in the family line of being goel. In other words, somebody else had the right of first refusal. And so as we left last week, we saw that this very day that chapter 3 ended with and chapter 4 began with, that very day, Ruth would be married. She just didn't know who to. Would she be married to Boaz, the love of her life? The, oh, great, this wonderful man that God has called him out. Or would she be married to, as we're going to see, Mr. So-and-so? And we'll find out about that right now. Verse 1. No, I mean that too. I'm speaking from the literal Hebrew there, Mr. So-and-so. But we'll see. Verse 1. Now Boaz went up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the close relative of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, come aside, friend, sit down here. So he came aside and sat down. Now again, this was the man that Boaz had mentioned to Ruth the evening before. 
Ruth, I want to marry you. But by the laws of Israel, there's a man who is in closer relationship to you than I. And he has the right to first refusal. And we saw how wonderful it was that this showed us last week that Boaz was a man who would not cut corners. Boaz was a man who would not skirt the law. But if he was going to marry Ruth, he was going to do it righteously and in the right way. And so he says to Ruth, Ruth, this guy has to turn you down before I can accept you and marry you. So now Boaz has made a plan by which he's going to speak to this man and he's going to address him and and see if he can get this man to refuse Ruth. Well, how's it going to work? Well, first of all, verse 1, he went up to the gate and sat down there. Now, please don't picture in your mind Boaz sitting on a literal gate as if he's sitting on top of the gate or something like that. Oh, I hope the gate doesn't swing because then Boaz will fall off. No, that's not it at all. The gates of the city in the ancient world were sort of a combination of city council chamber and courtroom. It was where the esteemed men of the city came and hang out during the day. And so it was where official business was transacted. That's why Boaz went there. And as he was there, this other man, this man who's the closer relative than Ruth than even Boaz is, he comes by and this is what Boaz says to him. So Boaz said, verse 1, come aside, friend, sit down here. Now that phrase, come aside, friend, literally in the ancient Hebrew, and I mean this literally, literally in the ancient Hebrew, he addresses him not as friend, but as Mr. So-and-so. The Hebrew text is deliberately obscuring the name of this guy. In other words, it's just the writer says, I know this guy's name, but I'm not going to refer to him. I'm going to call him Mr. So-and-so. Now why? Why? Well, because this man did not exactly fulfill his duty to Ruth. And so the text does not want to embarrass him. So it just refers to him as Mr. So-and-so. So Boaz, hi, Mr. So-and-so, come here. I need to talk to you about something. Verse 2, and he took 10 men, elders of the city, and said, sit down here. So they sat down. So are you ready for this? Official business is about to be transacted. Verse 3. Then he said to the close relative, Mr. So-and-so, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, sold the piece of land which belonged to our brother Elimelech. Okay, they all nod. Yes, we know this. Naomi, Elimelech, they left 10 years ago. Now they're back. Their land got sold. We understand this. Now verse 4. And I thought to inform you, saying, buy it back in the presence of the inhabitants and the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not redeem it, then tell me that I may know, for there is no one but you to redeem it, and I am next after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Now you need to understand what's going on here. Do you understand that this man just said, I will exercise my option as kinsman redeemer. And I'm sure Ruth and Naomi were looking on. They had to be watching this, don't you think? And as they watched this, if the camera would have panned over to them at that moment, you would have saw, you would not have seen two more crestfallen women in your entire life. They look so down, so disappointed. Ruth doesn't get to marry the love of her life, Boaz. She has to marry Mr. So-and-so. And this is because this man is going to exercise his option. But Boaz, what are you doing? Why did you present it to him this way? Why didn't you think more cleverly? Boaz says, no, no, I know exactly what I'm doing. Did you notice something about the way that Boaz presented this to the man in verse 4? All he mentions is property. He doesn't mention Ruth at all, right? Look again at verse 4. I'll read it to you. 
He says, uh, if you will redeem it, redeem it. Uh, I thought to inform you saying, buy it back in the presence of the inhabitants and the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not redeem it, then tell me that I may know. For there is no one but you to redeem it. And I am next after you. Boaz presents the situation to Mr. So-and-so purely as a property transaction. Knowing that the man would respond to it. Look, what man doesn't want to add more property to his portfolio if he can, right? Here's an opportunity to buy more land, and it's a good price, and you can do it. Just about any man would say, well, yes, I'd love to do that. As long as it was presented as a property transaction to Mr. So-and-so, Mr. So-and-so was, yes, I'll do it. And it seems like Boaz made a critical mistake in presenting it to him that way. Ruth and Naomi, they're starting to tear up on the side. What's going to happen here? I won't be able to marry Boaz. But then what happens? Verse 5. Then Boaz said, on the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you must also buy it from Ruth the Moabitess, the wife of the dead, to perpetuate the name of the dead through his inheritance. Now, when Mr. So-and-so thought it was only about land and a relation to Naomi, he thought, okay, Naomi's old, she can't have children anymore, I don't have anything to do, no obligations to give her more descendants, fine. But as soon as Boaz dropped the hammer on this guy and brought in Ruth, then he realizes, whoa, this isn't just about property. If I take the property, I also have to take Ruth, and not just take her as a wife, but I'm obligated to raise up children to her so that there will be children to the name of her dead ancestor, Elimelech. I have to do this. And suddenly it becomes much more of an issue for Mr. So-and-so. Now, again, I want you to understand that because of Boaz's wise and maybe even shrewd way of framing the occasion... This was the first time that Mr. So-and-so had even thought of this. You see, when it was just about property, it was an easy decision, right? But now when it's about adding another wife into your home, now when it's about adding more sons into your family, sons who will inherit among your present sons, then it's suddenly more complicated. How do you think Mr. So-and-so is going to look if he brings home a new wife to his old wife that day, right? You know the dynamic. It's not going to be received very well, is it? And so he thinks about, look at the reaction here in verse 6. And the close relative said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I ruin my own inheritance. You redeem my right of redemption for yourself, for I cannot redeem it. As soon as the whole picture is spelled out to him, he says, whoa, I can't do that. Boaz, as long as this was about land, I was interested. But if it's about adding another wife and having more children, I'm done with all that. Boaz, I passed the right on to you. And can you imagine the great big smile that came over the face of Ruth and Naomi at that time, right? Their tears are dried up. Yes, true love has triumphed. Her and Boaz are going to be able to get together because Boaz, because of his very wise plan, was able to engineer this. I want you to notice something. To my eye, the plan of Boaz looked foolish to begin with. Boaz, You you don't get a man to refuse by offering him the good part right up front. You should tell him the bad part up front. To me, Boaz's plan seemed foolish, but it had a wonderful wisdom behind it. And the tears that Ruth and Naomi were shedding were soon dried up, and they were ready to be very happy about the result. That's one thing I think about. The other thing I think about when I read this, 
I think about what's the difference between Boaz and Mr. So-and-so. You know, we we don't get the idea that Mr. So-and-so is a bad man. But what we do understand is there's a huge difference between him and Boaz. And this is it. Boaz loved Ruth. Right? Motivated by love, Boaz was thrilled to make whatever sacrifice was necessary to have Ruth and to bring her into his family. Motivated by love. Because Mr. So-and-so did not have the same love towards Ruth, he wasn't able to do the same thing. Keep that in mind as we go on. Now, verse 7. Now, this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging to confirm anything. One man took off his sandal and gave it to the other. And this was confirmation in Israel. Therefore, the close relative said to Boaz, buy it for yourself. So he took off his sandal. Now, this is very interesting to me because it's based on something described for us in Deuteronomy chapter 25, actually verses 5 through 10. It describes a ceremony where a kinsman, a goel, declines his responsibility. If you're a goel, if you're a kinsman redeemer in Israel, and if you're declining your responsibility, then the one declining his responsibility took off his sandal and gave it to the woman to whom he was declining his responsibility towards. And then you know what happened? Deuteronomy 25 actually says this, that the woman who was declined got to spit in his face. That's in the Bible. So here, I decline my responsibility. Here's my sandal. Right there in the face. Now why? This is why. Because it, it, the desire was to show that it was a disgraceful thing to decline your responsibility as kinsman redeemer. Right? This was a, you needed to step up if you were the kinsman redeemer. You couldn't back down. And so if you were going to decline it, it gave you the option of doing it. But you had to endure giving away your sandal, which was a sign of disgrace, and then letting that scorned woman spit in your face publicly. That's what you had to do. Now, here's the thing. In this situation, it's not a disgrace, right? Everybody's happy. They're happy that this guy, because everybody wants to see Boaz and Ruth get together. Boaz is happy. Ruth's happy. Naomi's happy. Mr. So-and-so's happy. Mr. So-and-so's wife is happy. Everybody's happy with all of this. So they skip the spitting in the face part, right? All they do is a little shoe exchange, and that seals the deal. So he took off his sandal, and now verse 9, Boaz gets to say, I am going to marry Ruth. Verse 9, you can just imagine, he's saying it in front of all the elders of the city. There they are gathered at the, roots of, at the gates of the city. And there's Ruth and Naomi, they're standing off to the side. And Boaz says this to everybody. Verse 9, and Boaz said to the elders and all the people, You are witnesses this day that I have bought all that was Elimelech's and all that was Chilion's and Mahalon's from the hand of Naomi. Moreover, Ruth the Moabitess, the widow of Mahalon, I have acquired as my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead through his inheritance and that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brethren and from his position at the gate. You are witnesses this day. Isn't that beautiful? He calls out to everybody, hey, everybody, this is a legally binding transaction. Yes, I'm taking the property of Elimelech as kinsman redeemer, but even more than that, I want to say publicly that I love this woman, Ruth, and I'm taking her as my wife. 
And it's a beautiful thing. Everybody understood this. Everybody understood that now the name of Elimelech would not perish from Israel, but there would be a posterity raised up to him. And he says beautifully in verse 10, Ruth, I have acquired as my wife. Now she knows who she's going to marry today. She's going to marry Boaz. Now I think all the way back to chapter 1, where Naomi was on her way back to Bethlehem. And the two daughters-in-law were tagging along, right? Ruth and Orpah. And this is what Naomi said to Ruth and Orpah. She says, listen, daughters, I love you, but go back to Moab. You're young women. You should get married again. And you have a much better chance of getting married in Moab than you ever do in Bethlehem. And it made sense, right? From all outward appearance, that was good, solid advice that Naomi gave to Ruth and Orpah. And Orpah followed the advice. Orpah says, bye, mother-in-law Naomi, I'm going back to Moab. But what did Ruth say? She said, no, I don't care if my prospects for marriage are much worse by going back to Bethlehem with you. I want to go because I want your God to be my God. And that was the critical turning point for Ruth. Isn't this beautiful? Once Ruth made the God of Israel her God and walked faithfully after him, God took care of these needs in her life. She obeyed God completely. You might even say that she followed God recklessly. And God said, I am going to take care of this daughter of mine. And God brought her together in a beautiful marriage relationship with Boaz. Isn't it wonderful when people can entrust such heavy things in their life to the Lord? I mean, listen, it's an easy thing to trust some things to the Lord, right? You have things in your life, they're easy for you to trust God about. But there's other things in your life that you really run the risk of grabbing them from God's, God's hands and doing it your own way, and instead you do not want to trust in the Lord. Well, listen, this was hard for Ruth, but she trusted God in the midst of it, and God did not disappoint her in the slightest. And there publicly, before everybody, the gates of the city of Bethlehem, Boaz proclaims, you are my witnesses this day. I am marrying this woman. Do you know what this was? This was a public wedding ceremony, a marriage ceremony. And this explains, too, this one phrase, you are witnesses this day. This explains to us why a marriage ceremony is important and why it should be recognized by the civil authorities. If you don't mind, I'll get off on a little bit of a tangent about this. But the fact that Boaz understands that there should be witnesses to their love. In other words, the love relationship and the love commitment that Ruth and Boaz had together, it wasn't to be a secret thing. It was to be a public thing, and it was to have witnesses to recognize it. Boaz had a love for Ruth that was public and a love that wanted to be publicly witnessed and registered. Now, sometimes... People wonder why a marriage ceremony or a marriage license is important. This is what I hear from people. And you can imagine, being a Bible college director, I hear this more than I want to. You hear it from some students that say, well, why can't we just be married before God? And I tell them this. I say, listen, there's something very lacking in a love that does not want to proclaim itself, that doesn't want witnesses, that doesn't want to be recognized by the civil authorities. That love falls short of true marital love. And so this, I want to be married before God. No, 
If you want to be married before God, then get married before witnesses. Get married before the state. Get married the way that our culture for thousands of years has said, this is what marriage is and this is how we'll recognize it. Now, you know what they often say to me in reply? I've heard this. I've heard this at least a dozen times. It's this one. You know this one. You're going to recognize it as soon as I say it. They say, well, what if we were on a desert island and there were no one to marry us? Could we then be married before God? And they usually feel pretty satisfied when they say that to me. Like, oh, we got him. And I always answer, yes. Yes. If you were trapped on a desert island with your beloved and there's no way to get off the island and you're there for the next 50 years, yes, you can just get married before God and live as husband and wife. Yes, you can. But here's the point. You're not on a desert island. You're living right here in the midst of a culture with witnesses and civil institutions for marriage and marriage licenses and all the rest. Do it the right way and give God glory through doing it that way. Well, this is the blessing of it all here. Verse 11. And all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. The Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, the two who built the house of Israel, and may you prosper in Ephrath and be famous in Bethlehem. May your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring which the Lord will give you from this young woman. Well, you know, when Boaz made his great statement, Hey, everybody, I want you to know it. I'm taking this land and I'm marrying this woman. No doubt the crowd all cheered. The men thought that Ruth was beautiful. The women thought Boaz was handsome. And everybody could see what a romantic, loving occasion this was. But don't miss the point. This wasn't just about love and romance, but it was something about even more. It was providing a destiny and a future for Ruth, right? Her her future was secure now. She had a godly, loving man that she was attached to. She had a future. She had hope now where before she had no hope. And now they bless her. Everybody's cheering. They bless her. They say, you be just like Rachel and Leah. I'll just say this. Rachel and Leah, they had credited to their account. Let's just say this. It's more complicated than just saying they had these children. But let's say they had credited to their account 13 children. That's what they're basically saying. Ruth, Boaz, we want you to have a whole bunch of babies like Ruth and, excuse me, like Rachel and Leah did. So now verse 13, in my little outline, I start this section, happily ever after. Verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And when he went into her, the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. I like that phrase, the Lord gave her conception. You know, the gift of children was never taken for granted in Israel. And the fact that Boaz and Ruth were able to raise up a son to the deceased Elimelech, that was an evidence of God's blessing. God was blessing this marriage, this family. Verse 14. Then the women said to Naomi, now notice here, now the focus is back on Naomi, right? It's all about Ruth, Boaz, Ruth, Boaz. But now verse 14, the focus shifts back to Naomi. Do you remember Naomi? Naomi, don't call me pleasant, call me bitter. Do you remember her? Do you remember Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Lord has brought me me low. Naomi, if we could call her sort of the Job, the female Job of the Old Testament, 
Now what do they say? The women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a close relative. May his name be famous in Israel. And may he be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is better to you than seven sons, has borne him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her bosom and became a nurse to him. Look at how blessed Naomi is. Now she has a grandson. Now she's famous in Israel. Now she got to be a nurse to her own grandson. And it's all because of that great testimony in verse 14 that the Lord has not left you this day without a close relative, a goel, a redeemer, a kinsman redeemer. It's very appropriate that here at the end of the book of Ruth, all these blessings are given so much attention because Naomi was the one, this one woman who decided to get right with God. The whole story springs forth from that, right? One poor widow. What does she have? Nothing. Who is she? Nobody. One poor widow. She's not even living in Israel. She's living in Moab. Everything in her life has been taken away. One poor widow. One poor widow gets right with God. And this whole drama of God's glory and redemption is put in motion. Oh, redemption, I mean that word. Because do you understand that your salvation today is connected back to when Naomi got right with God? I mean that. I mean that literally. I'm not talking symbolically. I mean literally. Your salvation today is connected back to what this poor widow did when she decided to get right with God. I wonder, I wonder about somebody today who needs to turn. Their life needs to turn back to God. You you need to trust God in a way that he's been calling you to trust him. And you've been resisting. And you have this matter in mind. You have this idea in mind. You say, what does it matter? What does it really do? It's my life. If I want to ruin it, if I want to live for less, what does it really affect I want you to see that this one little pebble dropped in the pool, it sent out waves that touches you and I today. You're turning to the Lord. You're trusting him in the way that he calls you to trust him. You're getting right with God can impact lives and steer history in a way that you have never, ever dreamed of. You might be the one saying today, the Lord has dealt very bitterly with me. The Lord has brought me home again empty. The Lord has testified against me, all like Naomi said. But listen, if Naomi could only seen then how greatly the Lord would bless her at the end, she wouldn't be saying that. She'd have hope. And so can you. We should learn from what Naomi learned. That God's plan is perfect. And that God's plan is filled with love. And even when we can't figure out what God is doing, even when we feel like Naomi or Job or anybody else who's afflicted, even when it seems so desperate, God still knows what he's doing and he can redeem every situation. We should learn this, that all things work together for good to those who love God, for those who are the called according to his purpose, right? That verse should be in gold in your Bible. It's Romans 8.28. And this is what Ruth and Naomi and this whole story teaches us. Look at here, verse 17. Also the neighbor women gave him a name saying, 
There is a son born to Naomi, and they called his name Obed. He's the father of Jesse, the father of David. And now this is the genealogy of Perez. Perez begot Herzon. Herzon begot Ram. Ram begot Aminadab. Aminadab begot Nashon. And Nashon begot Salmon. Salmon begot Boaz. And Boaz begot Obed. Obed begot Jesse. And Jesse begot David. Did you see that? See that in verse 17? The father of David. Verse 22, Jesse begot David. Here's the whole story. Ruth and Boaz had a son and they named him Obed. Obed had a son and he was named Jesse. Jesse had a son and his name was David. And David had a descendant and his name was Jesus. And that's how what Naomi did touches our life today. You see, Naomi's return to Bethlehem and the roots of David in Bethlehem all go back to Ruth and Boaz. That's all why Joseph and Mary had to travel down from uh, Nazareth all the way to Bethlehem for Jesus to be born there because he would come from Bethlehem. But this is what I want you to know, is that the connection or the place of Jesus in this great book of Ruth is much more than his connection uh, biologically to Ruth and Boaz and the connection to Bethlehem as a place. I want you to see that Jesus is our kinsman redeemer. I've said this every time, but I need to press it home again. It's like Jesus is Boaz and we're like Ruth. It's like Jesus is this godly man who is full of kindness and love and compassion, who has the resources and the love to save us, and we are like Ruth. We're the foreigners, we're the outcasts, we're the people who have nothing and no future, and our past doesn't look good either, and yet we need a savior like a Boaz to come along. Let me tell you something. The kinsman redeemer, Boaz, he had to be a family member, right? You couldn't have somebody coming from some other tribe. He had to be related to them by family. And so Jesus is related to you. Do you understand that Jesus, as the second member of the Trinity, as the second member of the Godhead in heaven, that what he did so that he could be your kinsman redeemer was that he added humanity to his divine nature and became fully God and fully man so that he could be your kinsman redeemer and so that he could save you. And then the kinsman redeemer also had the duty of buying back land that had been forfeited. Jesus came back and he said, listen, this earth, in a way, it's been forfeited to Satan. Now only in a sense. But there's a sense in which Satan is the God of this world. And the territory of this world has been forfeited to Satan in some sense. And now Jesus says, as kinsman redeemer, I've come back to redeem this earth. And then Boaz, as a kinsman redeemer to Ruth, he wasn't motivated by self-interest. You know, it was Mr. So-and-so who was only interested in the land. But Boaz was motivated by what? By love. And what motivated your kinsman redeemer to come and save you? Because you were so beautiful? Because you were so wonderful? No, it's because of the great love that was within him. I think of it as well. You know, Boaz had a plan, and that plan looked kind of foolish to begin with, right? Jesus has a plan for our salvation. And that plan looks kind of foolish to begin with. What, I'm going to save the world by dying on a cross? I'm going to bring men glory by undergoing such shame and degradation? Yes, that's the plan that seems foolish in the eyes of many, but it's effective in the power of God for bringing many people into God's kingdom. And then think about this. 
Boaz, his kinsman redeemer, not only did he redeem the land, but he did what for Ruth? He took Ruth as his bride. And so does Jesus do that for us as well, right? He takes us home and he loves us in that way. Then finally, Boaz, as a kinsman redeemer, he provided a glorious destiny for Ruth. And that's exactly what Jesus does for us. He provides a glorious destiny. But it all comes back to this idea of Jesus as our kinsman redeemer. And this is why he became a man. God might have theoretically sent an angel to save us, but an angel wouldn't have been related to us, right? An angel couldn't have been our kinsman redeemer. And then theoretically, God could have raised up a great prophet or something like that to save us. But no, 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 we needed more than a prophet because a prophet carried the same stain of sin that you and I have. The prophet's in the same quicksand that you and I are trapped in. No, so he had to be fully God and fully man so that he could bridge the gap between divine and human, and Jesus does this. He can be our kinsman and our redeemer. And God did it for Ruth and Boaz. He will do it for us as well. Let me call your attention to one last thing. Go back to verse 14, if you will. Notice those words. This is what the women of the village, and I bet it's even sweeter to Naomi that these other women said it, and she didn't even say it herself, but to hear it said in her ears from these other women, said simply, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a close relative, a goel, a kinsman redeemer, and may his name be famous in Israel. Well, I say that to you. Blessed be the name of the Lord who has not left you without a deliverer, a kinsman redeemer. He's given it to you. You just have to do exactly what Ruth did. Remember we saw that last week? Ruth boldly made her appeal in faith to her kinsman redeemer. And Boaz was able, through the wisdom of his plan, to fulfill everything with her. God has not forsaken you. God has not left you alone. He's provided this kinsman redeemer for you. It's your place to reach out to him in faith. And that's what we'll do together right now. Let's stand and pray.